never had a voice, but now I have a voice. And I will use my voice now um, to protect myself and to protect my family. Telling her story, come on. From the heart of the mystery to spell it. Years of violence. We are breaking the silence. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Cocoon Podcast. I am your host, Ruby, and this interview was a very intense one. It was very eye-opening about the adoption process in Australia and really about just parenting with trauma and growing up as a child and having to carry all that trauma throughout adulthood and how it affects you and your children. Yeah, I feel like if you're particularly a parent or if you're interested in the adoption process here in Australia, this is definitely going to be a very interesting and knowledgeable one for you. Stay tuned. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to talk to you. So, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, Yeah, I'm Julie Henderson. Um, I don't know what else you want me to say about myself. Um, So, what are your hobbies? Like, what do you like doing? Well, I like making salt. I make all my own products, like cleaning products and stuff, very much down the natural route. I like to knit and crochet when I have the time. Reading, um, yeah, going to the beach when we can, yeah. Beautiful, and so you have uh, family and children? Yep, a hobby and five children. Yeah. Four biological and one that we have that we're fostering at the moment. Oh, that's so beautiful. So so now we get to the nitty-gritty. So what is your story? Why why have you chosen for me to interview you today? Well, Tina put out a call for anybody who wanted to be on the podcast, so I I responded to that. that. Um, I think it's good to talk about your story, not to hide it like I did for the odd years. Um, So it's like, yeah, I need to... I have talked about it on my social media. I have put it out there, but if anyone wants to know anything, I'm happy to chat, but nobody <laughs> wants to talk about this stuff. <laughs> Everyone gets a bit um, tongue-tied if I talk about things and you can see them like backing away or trying to change the subject. So I'm like, why? It doesn't make the subject go away. It's still yeah. there, you know, and you can put your head under the sand, but the problem's still there. I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, I mean, like, we're more than happy to talk about it. Why do you think talking about it is so important for people? For me, I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, when I spoke about it, it stopped that... No, it didn't stop. It lessened the brain chatter. Mm -hmm. It stopped the visual things that that keep reliving the reliving the reliving. Um which I thought was going to be the opposite. If I spoke about it, I was going to think about it more. uh, And that was something I didn't want. So that was, I was very resistant to go and speak to somebody about it and um, get it out there. But also for me as well, it was more of um, a shameful thing. And would people look at me differently if they knew what I'd been through and go, or she's got kids, we need to watch her because she might be doing that to her kids. And I couldn't stand the thought that anybody would think that of me. And I think that's a lot of the reason why I kept it all to myself, but it didn't do me any favours keeping it to myself. It was destructive. Yeah, I completely understand that. When you hold something like that in for so long, it almost like tears you up from the inside out Mm. or it can suffocate you. It's like such a heavy weight on your chest. Yeah. So how long did it take for you from what happened to when you started talking about it? How long was that process? A very long, a very long time. I divulged, well, he knew with some of my answers so it would be my second husband so I was in my 40s uh, around yeah around 40 41 42 um and he just knew he worked in that industry um 
he was a compliance and monitoring officer that monitored sex offenders and things in the community. And he knew from some of my responses when I was talking about things that something had gone down. Um, he did push me, uh, which I'm thankful he did, because I needed that push. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very resistant to getting help. It took another couple of years before I went, okay, yeah, I need help here. So I went to my doctor and then just went to see numerous counsellors who I did just didn't fit. Um, yeah, so 42 years is a long time. It is, but you know what? Like you took that very first step, which I think is so difficult for survivors. Mm. So what was that trigger point for you to be like, now is the time to do that healing work on myself? It was a combination of that I'd had... Um, two babies more or less one after the other so I was pregnant with Poppy who's 12 That's now a name. and we said we don't really want it to be like an only child because I've got two older girls who are 21 and 25 and there's a big age gap there and so I said let's get on with having another one so Rosie was born 14 months later and I think the combination of all that hormone changes and postnatal depression which I was diagnosed with Rosie just spiraled me I was depleted in anything good in my body and I just couldn't cope Uh, the house was struggling with me Hmm. yeah and I didn't see it too much no that's me I'm lying to myself I did see it but I didn't want to see it it's more the thing and I didn't want to go well it's because of this it was anything other than what I'd been through. I couldn't... I didn't want to make the connection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand that that would have been such a, you know, a, a bit of such a conundrum to be in, to have all these feelings come to you at once, while also having a baby and also having... You would have had a toddler as well. Yeah, she was only 14 months old. Yeah, yeah. So that's such a tight age gap too. Mm. So how did you and your uh, husband and that start to cope with you, with these all new feelings, these all new memories coming back, you know, you having these such young children, how did you and your husband manage to kind of keep that connection? How did you manage to keep that? You didn't, didn't? No, we were, sorry, a shit show. That's all right. Absolutely a shit show. Um, Because whilst he knew what to do professionally, I wasn't a professional client, you know, or a work client. And that just threw him, threw him. And I, I do remember saying to him, just treat me like you would, you know, like when you go see mm. someone, you know. And he's going, but this is personal and, you know, and that's not personal. I'm like, okay, we'll try not to make it personal. And just, we, we really, really struggled. And um, we just didn't. I just didn't get along for a long time. Even though there was love there, we just didn't get along on that thing. And then I found this book, Trauma Through the A Child's Eyes. This was like my saving grace. Like I, I haven't read all of it because I don't need to read all of it. I only read the bits that were that were relevant to me because um, it is more like child-based if you've got a child. Um, but it made the dots from the things that I was lacking as a child that I never received and the things that I needed to receive to be in it order to move on. Mm-hmm. And that just went, oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. So simple, you know, <laughs> so simple. And it was that that hug, that reassurance, that love that I'd never experienced before. Um, I was like, as a child, I was just never... I was seen, but I was never heard. Um, yeah, I was just someone, you know, well, this is, we'll treat you this way. And there was nothing, like, parental love there. Yeah. Um, now when I look back, yeah, I had good moments. I had, you know, a nice childhood, <laughs> especially with my grandparents, but, um, yeah, not with my father. But, yeah. And I don't, my mum, I don't know if my mum knew or, um, or anything like that. 
I don't know and I, I don't see her, she's in England, I don't, I don't see her. I just literally don't see any of my family um, for one reason or another. But my stepmother knew, this, this was a biggie. This was, um, I don't know what had gone on. We'd had a party one year and... Um, so just to gain some clarification for the listeners, your abuse happened as a child? through to adulthood yeah yeah um so we'd had a like a party at christmas and none of my father's side of the family turned up only my stepmother's side of the family turned up and i just remember him um coming up to my room i was in bed and i was just absolutely petrified of what was going to happen and um he was just close to me and he was just saying oh i'm you know gonna watch over you and you know, I'm always going to be, you know, watching you. I was just like, what on earth? What, what do you mean? And he just stayed there for a bit and he was like stroking me. I was just like, I felt sick. I didn't know what to do. Um, and then he left. So then I went downstairs to my, because I was in the attic, I went downstairs to my stepmom's room and I said, oh, my dad's just been saying this. So she got up and he was downstairs slumped. He, taken pills and drink and try to commit suicide and um, he got taken away to the hospital I don't know like it's pretty vague because nobody fills you in as yeah. a kid um, and then next I just remember being at um, my grandparents house she well, they weren't my grandparents they were my stepmom's mom and dad and we were in the lounge room alone, just me and my stepsister, and she just outright said, has your dad ever touched you? And I felt sick and I just and I just nodded. And she asked my stepsister the same question and she said yes. And that was the first time me hearing that. I didn't know. And um, nothing happened. He came home and we just carried on life like nothing changed like okay and as a child like if if that kind of part is being ignored you know when you're so young you just kind of go along with the flow so did you have a kid so did you as a child just moved on and you were like okay well I guess that's it then and you just moved on with your life as a childhood well, you, you do because you don't know what, when I, cause it's relevant because when I went to see my first psychologist, because I cannot pinpoint when something started, mm. she said that it would have been before you were the age of two that your abuse started because it was normalised. So I go, okay. So I didn't know that whatever he was doing to me wasn't normal. I think it was only as you get older and you start hearing things and you go, oh, that's not normal. And then you feel weird inside, you know, because you don't know what to make of that. It's always, um, I don't think he ever specifically said to me, don't tell anyone. It's quite vague what I can remember but I do remember like one statement that he'd said to me oh, it was awful um, when I was a kid we were at, we were at my grandma's and we were moving house and our house wasn't ready so the family all split up and her two kids went to her parents house and me and my father went to my grandma's house while our house was ready and um, we were in the kitchen alone and my grandma come bursting in through the door. And I didn't think anything of it because she was just getting something from the kitchen. But then when we met up with my stepmother, he'd said to her, oh, it was so weird. You know, my mum came bursting in the room like, you know, like I was shagging my daughter. I was like, oh, wow. I just died inside. That's so brazen. Yeah, that's so absurd. Yeah. I was just like, 
I don't know how red I went, but I felt so hot and I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. Oh, it's like, oh my gosh. Um, and this was before, before he tried to commit suicide. So I don't know what had gone on at the hospital at that time, you know. Um, but yeah, but then what's sickening is that she then went on to have a baby with him later on. So that's my half-sister. Um, we don't speak either because when I did start to speak about what had gone on, I confronted my stepmother. And she just didn't, she didn't want to borrow it. She didn't want to hear what I had to say. She was painting herself a victim and said, I was a victim too. And I'm like, okay, how are you a victim? I could understand if you were a victim and you didn't know what had gone on, but one, you did know what went on. Two, you did nothing about it. And three, you went and had a child with him. How is that being a victim? That's not being a victim to me. That's you knowing, making decisions and choices for yourself. And her family knew too. And nobody did anything. Nobody said anything. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I completely resonate because I come from a grooming background myself. And I think what is most painful for me is that betrayal you feel yeah. by your entire family that like you just, like you knew and you just let it happen mm -hmm. and you didn't account for my safety. Yeah. So I completely understand where that comes from. So how do you think that all those feelings of safety in that manifest for you as a parent towards your children? Oh. Some may say that I'm over the top. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with Bobby's background too. We're ultra protective. Um, I do try to educate my girls. Um, my girls didn't know about my abuse until they got older and very age appropriate. They don't know, even my two oldest ones, exactly what I went through. They know that I was abused or sexually abused, but they don't know what that entails. I have never told them details. If they want to know details, I'm happy to tell them, but I think they don't really want to know exactly what I've been through because I think they'd be hurt too much. So we're starting that journey with Poppy now. She's 12 and she knows, but she doesn't know details. The other two, Rosie, um, Rosie has Down syndrome, so I don't think she'll ever um, get to that stage of knowing anything. Well, she'll know, obviously. I didn't have a good upbringing, but, and um, our youngest one, she has a diagnosis too, um, but she's not officially ours yet. I can't say too much. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it does impact you. Yeah. On how protective I am. <laughs> yeah. And particularly because you have all, you've got all daughters as yeah. well. So obviously, I guess that their own sense of safety and stuff must be so important to you for them as women, you know, yes. regarding consent and yeah. kind of being protective over their, their bodies and their autonomy and all their decisions and stuff. Yeah. So do you find that having daughters specifically like kind of triggers or impacts what happened to you as a child and how you process that? Yes. Yeah, definitely. How so, do you reckon? Um, well, we're going through, well, we've just been through some stuff with Poppy's school, which she's the one right on the end. <laughs> she's only young in that picture. Um, and they're doing in PDHPE consent and things and she comes, she's very open Poppy, so she came home with a sheet a worksheet on consent and sex and it listed all these reasons why not to have sex and all of that lot and I looked at this list and I read it and I said oh okay so I'm going to get you to just show that to dad I said, I know what I'm thinking. I said, let's see if Dad's thinking the same thing. So he read it too. And he just looked at me and he said, where's the age of consent on here? Where is the law about consent on this sheet? And that's what school was, was missing. They were just saying, it's okay to have sex as long as you don't 
feel coerced. And then the law states that you can't have sex until you're 16. So there was a bit of conflict there. So they're telling kids as young as 10 and younger that if you're not coerced and you want to do it, then you can. No, you can't. Because you are just given a scenario that it's maybe a friend at school that you want to have sex with. But all that can be taken out of context and an adult can come and say, well, you know, you learnt it. I'm not going to force you to have sex. You want to have sex. It's up to you. And we can do that if you want. Oh, no, you can't. The law states, and it needs to be written down on the sheet, because we had a meeting with school, and they said, oh, well, we did tell the kids. And I said, you can tell the kids once. I said, and you expect them to remember. I said, it needs to be on these sheets what the law is around consent. So there's no blurred lines around it. I said, because from this sheet, I said, if my daughter then goes, yep, I'm going to have sex. I said, she comes home pregnant. I am then going to go to the police and this boy is going to be charged. And you're not talking about this stuff. This is the stuff you need to be talking about because there are consequences. It's not okay that a 12-year-old can say, well, yeah, but I consented to it, Mum. But you can't in the eyes of the law consent to anything, sweetie. You're 12. You have to be of older mind and a frame so that you understand what this actually means it's not just oh let's just let's do it It just seems to me that everybody just wants consent to be lowered or it be quite vague and blurred I shouldn't get started on that because I get quite passionate about you know that kind of stuff that's okay I mean like I'm more than happy to talk about it because I think consent you're right is so important and it needs to be fixed more in schools yeah. Um, you know, because yeah, I mean, like twelve years old having a baby—that's like you're a child. That's so young, and it mm. happens. It does. So how how would you kind of describe consent for you, and how do you teach your daughters, and how do you think it should be learnt in schools? Well, I don't think they should be. It's, it's really tricky. Because they're talking about consent to underage kids that can't consent. So how can you teach kids consent, but we're going to teach it you, but you can't consent till you're 16? I think that's where the confusion is. I think they should just let kids be kids. I think school maybe needs to take a step back on how much they're teaching our kids. Um, I'm not a parent that goes, oh, we're not going to skirt around that. I don't like to talk about that. I'll talk about anything to my kids. My kids can come to me with anything. And I know not every parent is like that. And a lot of parents go, God, I'm glad school are doing it. But you're not in control of what school's telling your kids. You need to be in control of what you're telling your kids. Not somebody else, not some government entity that says, this is what we're teaching your kids and them having control over it. I don't I don't I don't like that. I don't know. I don't know how to I don't know how to answer that. I don't know. Because it's confusing. Mm. Why would you teach consent to twelve year olds when you can't consent till you're sixteen? Can't you wait till they're at the age of sixteen or getting close to the age of sixteen and say, Look, you know, of course you're gonna do it and stuff, but here are the legal the legalities of it all and then these are the what could be the consequences if you do decide to do that you know and then teach all the other stuff like yeah don't do it if you don't want to don't be pressured and all of that stuff but I think year seven is just too early yeah I was still playing with Barbies in year seven when I was a kid you know still playing with babies and make-believe stuff or maybe that's just my obscure world because my world was not the same as everybody else's my world was not happy like that like I used to read a lot to escape reality and immerse myself in fantasy to 
not living in reality. So I don't know. It's really hard for me to say what should and shouldn't happen because my, my view is totally different to someone who's had like a traditional upbringing. Yeah. Like my husband, for example, he just he just just can't. He's like head wrecked, <laughs> you know, with what I, how my life was and how his life was. It's like yeah. I think that's why people should talk more about it to have an understanding of like you know literally where I come from and why I am the way that I am hmm. yeah I think that's I think that's really insightful as well for I think people who are listening to this who may not have been through it but are supporting people who have hmm. I mean so what does people or your husband have done an example that has helped you feel supported as a survivor because you're right our perspectives of the world are different because of what we went through it changes our brain Mm. it changes how we process relationships and everything and so obviously there are some people who are not going to understand that if they haven't been through sexual abuse Mm. so to those that haven't how can we support those that are close to us who have what did you need at that time of healing me, I just need some. I needed to be heard. I needed to be heard and listened to, and for someone to understand that when I react, it's not a personal attack on you. It's just that you're the person that might be there, that might get my reaction to something. And I know my hubby, which is really struggle with this, is he personalized my trauma response he personalized it to himself but when he knew that it wasn't him he was the most supportive thing ever you know he was there with the hooks and the staff and the talking and all of that lot but then if he knew that it was him or he was unsure that he triggered something he didn't know what to do with that shit he did not know that he still needed to follow the same steps because after reading that book that's like kind of like that's what I needed I needed that hope that reassurance that I needed to feel that love that it's okay um, and then talk about well, why did I respond that way what happened was it something that happened right there and then or was it a build up and what can we do to, to stop that happening in the future or lessen that um which I know it sounds crazy but we're only just getting there with that now it's been a long road absolutely long road and frustrating for me because I was like once I'd read that book and realised that oh my god that's what I need that's what I want it was like oh simple simple this is so easy for him to do you know I can just come up and hug me you know like that and it was like that was just a fight that was another fight in itself getting to come and hug me um yeah we've had a very rocky road <laughs> but we're getting there now sorry i don't even know if i've answered the question <laughs> no you, you're doing great i think i think what you're saying is just so valuable to people particularly because a lot of you know women who do start their healing journey typically tend to do it when they've already like been in relationships and mm-hmm. have had children and have already kind of gotten their life together, which is even more difficult because you have so much weight as well, yeah. as well as trying to process this. So how do you think that you've maintained that connection with your husband now and tried to, how do you think you've got a marriage that's supportive and at least happy to an extent? Cause I mean, I've seen that photo of you up there. You look beautiful with those children. And we have the other one, but she's not on there because she yeah. wasn't born then. But yeah, um, a lot of talk, yeah. a lot of communication, which didn't happen so much. I think on his part, because he was worried that for me that it would trigger something mm-hmm. and that would send me into a spiral. And I said, no, I said, do you remember me saying to you, I didn't want to go to counselling when you need me to go to counselling because I didn't want to talk about it. I thought that it'd make it worse. I said it actually helped. And this is the same here. Like if we've got, if there's something here that's triggered me or something that, that was said or a smell or whatever, um, so we need to talk about it. 
and now he does he talks about it he's always checking in with me constantly now um, and having those awkward conversations that he might not have wanted to have before and, and I like that and I go yeah I, I like that you keep at me you know keep me level and grounded as it's more of an awareness for him because I said you need to be on the lookout for I can go very quiet and quite distant I said you notice that that's your time that's your time you need to come you need to talk to me you need to ask me and he's figuring it out a lot a lot better now than than he ever has and I think naively me thought that he would be able to slot in that role really easy not thinking that he would have any emotions around it or any thoughts around it because you know what I told him to do it so just go and do it you know but it didn't happen like that um yeah, we're, we're still here, we're still fighting strong, we're still um, conquering, so to speak. <laughs> I think that's so cool though, you're working through it. I think, you know, I, I, I think relationships now, particularly from my age, I'm 25, they just, they fall apart so easily because I think people don't tend to work through things anymore. And I think what you mentioned about you and your husband working through things is so important because I think... Do you think that's how relationships can grow when you work through things with your partner? Oh, for sure. For sure. Because we've hit some really low points and we've had to work really hard. And not just me, him as well. Both of us have had to work really hard at it. And it's not been easy. We've been to marriage counsellors and things and um, done that hard yard. Um, I think it's so important. Yeah that communication yeah and now like so like we're even closer now because we're going through uh, an adoption pathway with our youngest and we're with an agency who is really not respecting my trauma it's been this is the incidents over since we lost our caseworker in December I've just gone downhill and now they're using my trauma against me. They are telling me that I am triggered and this is what I'm feeling and this is why, you know, you need to work on yourself more. I have been floored by that. I'm like, where's your trauma-informed practice here? Because you don't tell me what I'm triggered by. You don't tell me what my trauma looks like. I tell you that. If I say I'm triggered by something, then I'm triggered by it, and I'll tell you why I'm triggered by it. But for you telling me I'm triggered by this certain something, because I can't divulge, is incorrect. And I have expressed this on more than one occasion that that is not a triggering thing for me but they're insisting that it is um, yeah I'm not happy I have asked for a meeting to be called because now they won't support the adoption I've been on this adoption pathway for four years four hard years doing that hard life story work with our youngest for you to turn around and say now I'm not going to support you because of my triggers. Yeah, that's appalling. Yeah, everyone I've spoken to, like I spoke to my counsellor, and she said, look, I can author a letter. Um, she says, because unfortunately I will be contradicting what they have to say, um, if you need that for court or anything like that. Um, so I just... I don't know, I'm really confused by them because they're not going to support the adoption... But they want us to stay with them as an agency and we they are hoping to mend the relationship and they believe that it's in their best interest to stay in our youngest life. Okay, how, how do we work now when I want something that you don't want to support? So how do I stay with you as an agency? Um, why do you want to be in her life? 
when you've not been in a life for how many months now? Because we are again with no caseworker. Nobody saw our daughter for four months. Nobody had eyes on her. She's in care. That's another big thing for me. Yeah, that she's not being looked after she's not. or protected. Nobody's coming out here. Nobody knows. They don't know me. They know me to an extent, but they don't know me. They could be doing anything. Yeah. And nobody's coming to check. Nobody's been there. So we put a complaint in to the children's guardian and to the ombudsman. They inter- interviewed us, asked us some questions. Well, we put our case forward as to, you know, body, body, blah. We then went and interviewed our agency. They said the total opposite to what we're saying. And we got a letter back saying, oh, case closed, uh, nothing to answer to. I said to my husband, I said, that's really concerning and really worrying. I said, because I know this isn't a case of we're reporting some child abuse. Um, I said, but could you imagine if that was? The extent of their investigation shows that we've said one thing, they've said another, time to investigate because they don't, the two stories don't marry up. But no, that's a case of, oh, well, we're going to side with the agency and said that there's nothing else that needs to be followed up. And I said, that's scary, knowing that if a child's been abused, say like in the system, in the foster care system, and the agency doesn't want this to get out, all they have to do is contradict whatever somebody's saying and go, oh, no, no, that's not the case. It's this, 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 and this, and then go, oh, yeah, matter closed. I am absolutely appalled. We're here to protect children. And if nobody's hearing them, and nobody's hearing the people that are saying things, then where does it go? It goes nowhere. We're not going to let it lie, though. We won't let it lie. We, like as I said to Kath, our agency, that um, I spoke to Kara Sport yesterday, I said, if you think that I'm going to walk away from this and be quiet, I said, I'm not. I said, you're going to hear me. I said, and I want answers. So hopefully this meeting might shed some answers. But yeah, I'm not happy. Not yeah. happy at all. The way that they've treated me and my trauma. I mean, if I weren't as strong as I am, could have absolutely done me in, sent me off into a spiral. Um, but I'm I'm a strong person. Um, but I'm here standing. I'm still here fighting. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna speak loud and clear. And I try to encourage. Like I know I've quite a number of people that have been in my situation that have been abused. And they don't speak about it. They'll message me privately and say, oh, I don't like your posts and stuff like that because I don't want anything to come back on me or people to say anything. I'm like, you're just lacking a post. I don't mean to say you've suffered that. It could just be that you're supporting that. Well, that's, entirely, that's entirely up to you. I even had one friend. She literally unfriended me because she didn't like to see what I was posting and because none of her family knew what she'd been through and she couldn't stand seeing what I was what I was writing and I'm like okay well that's, that's your choice you want to put your head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist but somewhere in your timeline this is going to affect you majorly something's going to trigger you you're not going to be able to tell anyone because you don't want to talk about it I just feel sad I feel sad for the people like that. I mean, even if you didn't want to tell your family, hello, I'm here, mm. message me. I can talk to you. I don't have to tell anybody else what you've spoken to me about. At least you've got somebody to reach out to. I think that's what's sad, is that people aren't, aren't brave enough to, to speak about it. I mean, I know it took me a long time, but yeah, I'm here now. I'm saying, look, if I did it, you can do it. <laughs> Come on, let's all support each other. Yeah, exactly. I'm so proud of you. You are so strong for what you're going through. I mean, that sounds so difficult, what's happening with the adoption process. And you're, yeah, it just sounds like it. And I think it also raises that topic that you can have trauma and still be a great parent. Yeah. And still be a loving parent and break that cycle. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that matters and that's true? Oh, for sure, because I know that I would never, ever harm my kids. Because I think the 
I plodded along until I had my my eldest, Lois, and I had her when I was 27. That's so but, young. <laughs> I know. And I used to think I was an old mum. And, um, and I had her, and it would only then, the realisation of, deep, deep, like really hit me was, oh my gosh, how could you do this to your own child? I just used to look at her, and, but this is when I used to have all the flashbacks and things of anything like changing her nappy. I was very aware of where my hands were, what I was doing. And I was like, is anybody watching me? Because do people know, you know, am I giving off some aura? It was awful absolutely awful and I I didn't cope after having Lois and um, I remember I was must have been so out of control and my husband back then my first husband he worked away a lot and I do remember him saying very early on he goes oh my god I'm not going to give you another child if this is the way you are I mean he didn't know what I've been through but I just thought oh my god the hell's wrong with me <laughs> just you know I don't know and ever since then, I've just been I'm just so protective of my girls. And but those replays in your head are not good. Like I couldn't even like my Ava, my daughter is at home now. She says I sometimes see your mom when I get knickers and stuff off the line, and I'm just lining them up and just putting them all in the girls' piles. And I have to pull the crotch part out to make them straight. That's just me, I'm OCD. And um, I couldn't do that for such a long time because when my dad was sorting out arnicas, he used to go like this on the crotch with his finger. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm sorry, I don't know if this is too much for your listeners. (laughs) But that's the kind of stuff that just keeps going over in my head. So every time I'm with the washing, that was like playing, playing, playing. Not so much nowadays. I'm pretty much okay with it just occasionally something will it will replay um but yeah just i don't know but i had some angelic healing yesterday and um oh that experience yesterday was amazing i didn't know what to expect you know i've been to like readers before and nothing's ever come true or anything but i was laid on this bed and she was well, my eyes were short. I could just feel her around me. But I did ask her at the end, did she have like some kind of heat source when she was at my head? Because I felt hot. Like it, was, it was something was wafting over me, some kind of heat. And she said, no, 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 no heat. And I got up from that session. I was aching my arms, my legs. I was like, I felt a bit dizzy. Um, and she said, that's all like, normal. Um, and she told me what she cleared, what she got rid of, what the angels had told her that I don't need anymore. Let's cut that. Let's, let's release it. The only thing they didn't release was the shoulder. They lessened the load because they said to me that I appear one way to the world. But internally, I'm not nice to myself. Mm. I don't say nice things to myself. I don't have self-confidence or any self-esteem. And she says, and I'm finding it difficult to say that to you because I don't see that in you. I see this person. And I said, no, no, I resonate with that. I do. And I do like self-confidence and self-esteem. And I know people might go, well, oh my God, she's so bubbly. She's this, she's that. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not really. I'm not at all. I'm very quiet. I'm very reserved. I think it's just nerves at times. But they said they kept the shoulder but lessened it because if we got rid of it, she'd just pile it back up with more shit. So it'd be pointless. So we're going to let her keep that and she needs to work on that. <laughs> so she'd give me some stuff to do. But a couple of hours afterwards, she said it might take three days. Um, I did have a lot of lower back pain last night, but the aching in the legs and the arms have, you know, subsided a lot today. I do feel a lot lighter. 
There we go. Angelic healing might be a really cool therapy method for anyone out there experiencing trauma. We've got our first source here for that. No one's recommended that before. Oh, I totally recommend it. It was, And then she speaks to you afterwards and her, your angels come through because a massive worry of mine was um, that when my father ever did pass that he would be constantly watching me and it was something that I just really did not want you know and I'd express that internally to myself I'd expressed it verbally to other people and when I finally did start court proceedings against my father he's in England and I live here um, we did say to the police that you know if you don't keep him locked up he will try to commit suicide again and they said oh no no he's got a nominated person because they were releasing him on bail back out into the community and um, somebody was going to be checking in on him I'm like, okay well, this is not gonna end good and what do you know I get a call from the police a week before he was due in court and that his sister had found him in his flat um, and he'd hung himself. And I'm like, okay, there you go. There's the guilty verdict for me, but there's no guilty verdict for legally to say, yes, this is what happened. This is what he did. And this is his consequence. I, I didn't get receive any of that. And there's no closure as well with that too. No, no. And he, he knew, he knew that he was going to be found guilty because it wasn't just me. It was two other people as well that, you know, I'd found out, like, I found out about my stepsister when I was younger, but I knew nothing of my stepbrother at all. Um, and my stepmom seemed to be more upset that when she found out about him, that she was like, oh. I didn't know it happened to him too. I'm like, oh, what difference would it have made if you did know? <laughs> you know? You were happy for it just to carry on for me and your daughter? Oh, I don't get that. But my stepsister didn't want to press charges. Uh, it was only me and my stepbrother that were going for it. Um, so yeah, he committed suicide. And when I knew that, I was like, oh my God, he's going to be watching me now. And I felt sick. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went to go and see a lady who does massage, and she was a very intuitive person. And um, when I went there, I was in her hallway, and her dogs, she had two dogs, they weren't barking at me. They were barking around me. They were barking at the walls, they were barking at the door, they were barking all around me. She said, what is going on with the dogs? What are they barking at? I, go, oh, I don't know. I said, I'm sorry. And um, she did the, the massage with me and everything. And she went, you know, you're surrounded by angels. She said, you have got an army of angels around you. And I went, really? I said, so does that mean my father can't see me she goes absolutely and I went oh I left there and I got in the car and I just started bawling I was so thankful and like when I went to Valerie I asked her I said I've been told I've got an army of angels surround me and she goes yes you do she says not only do you have the two that are given to you at birth she says you've got 10 angels around you at all times and she says your father is nowhere around. I know it. Thank you. I heard it twice now. So I'm like, yes, yes. You know, I don't care if they're saying it just to appease me. It makes me feel better. But I was like, yeah, two people can't be saying the same thing and going like, and she actually knew. The other lady didn't know how many. She just said an army. And then she said, no, there's actually 10. And then you're, you're two as well. So there's 12 of them that are, that are guiding me I'm like thank you so I I spoke to them yesterday because apparently I called on them for help when I was around 1920 I can't think of like a time I've... well because I think it brings us hope hope yeah. that there are people looking after us hoping that there's something 
positive that's going to come from all of this. That there is that light in the future. Yeah. But I think also just letting us know that we're not alone. You know, like I have my own beliefs and I think through my own trauma, they've personally saved me from spiraling so much. Mm. Because I because I think having that faith really helps cement your belief that these things are temporary and that we can grow and live a rejuvenated life from what we've experienced that it doesn't define us yeah i'm a big believer in choices and you thinking what you want to think and you believe in what you want to believe but that doesn't mean to say that we can't get along because we might have different views oh exactly views aside i still really like you as a person i might not like this about you but i love you as a person and yeah we don't agree on that some people just cannot do that. I think that's I think that's what I've learned throughout my journey is that everyone has their journey and sometimes their journey doesn't look like your journey or they don't align with your journey and they need to distance themselves from you and I thought that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, it hurts, it hurts. But that's you, you need to deal with you. I'm I'm dealing with me and making my journey the best that it can be, making my family the best that they can be. Yeah, and I think that's a really beautiful way to end this episode. So to all the listeners out there who want to be parents or who are parents, they have a background of abuse, they have a doubt about their skills in parenting or raising their children in a, you know, to, to be these really healthy, thriving adults and people in the world, what advice would you have for them? Don't ever doubt yourself. So don't <laughs> doubt yourself. Yeah. Have boundaries. Yeah. Big boundaries. Yeah. And, and express those boundaries. And be selective with the people that support you. Mix you. With. There is healing in your words. Let your voices be heard. There is healing. There is healing. Let your voices be heard. There is healing in your words, let your voices be heard, there is healing, there is healing.